Good morning. <laughs> you know, I heard that scripture passage not too long ago, and see if I can get that. Is that better? Better. Okay. And I was kind of struck by Jesus's response. This is a great story because the Pharisees bring this woman before him, and this is pretty clear. This is a pretty clear situation, right? Like they've got a lot of history. They've got some really clear scripture, and they want to test him. And like, it's not that hard a test, to be honest. They put her before him, and they say, "So, like, what should we do? Like, the law says we should start throwing some rocks at this woman." And and he just takes a moment. And I love this because I think this is just wisdom being played out, like just taking a moment. And he even does some weird stuff, like he kneels down, he starts writing in the dirt, he gets his hands a little dirty, he, he feels something tactile, he connects with the earth, he takes a moment, and he stands up, and he, he creatively engages the question. And this is why when, when I was asked to, to speak today, um, why I chose this passage, because it's not necessarily deeply connected with what I'm going to talk about, but this moment of, of, of creative engagement, I think, I think speaks to us. I think it can teach us something. And I, and I would ask us to maybe hold that phrase in our minds as we think about Creative engagement, what does it mean to be hospitable? Because the reality is over the weeks that we've been talking about hospitality, I have questions. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. I have more questions than I have answers um, from, from all of this reflection. And um, we're going to talk about what this idea of radical hospitality means, this word radical, um, means, it comes from the Latin word radix, which means root, like radish, root, right? So radical hospitality, to get to the root of what it means to be hospitable. And I think that that requires some creative engagement, okay? So can we just kind of hold that in our minds as we walk through this together today? Fair? Fair, Fair. okay. Um, the other thing that I would say before I get started too much is that um, it's, been, it's been a tough while for us here at East Chestnut. If you're uh, visiting, it's just been a tough year and a half for us, and um, and it's been hard to dig in, I think, and it's been hard to kind of wrestle with some of the harder questions. It's been a little easy to tap out recently, and I've been feeling that a little bit, um, but I've been kind of convicted recently that if I'm going to be here, I need to be here, <laughs> and I don't know that I have been here physically, intellectually, emotionally here, present. Um, and this, this discussion about hospitality, 
it's going to require me to be here. So I would just confess that to you. And it, and this morning comes um, into my mind just from this tension of not really being here. And if I'm going to be here, what does it mean? And if I'm going to engage in radical hospitality, what is that going to look like? So this is where I'm sitting. And I bring this to you kind of as I'm questioning myself. Um, I'll talk about some tough stuff this morning. And I think sometimes when we talk about hard things, it can feel a little rebukive or uh, like Elisa's up here telling us what we should or shouldn't do. And I really just want to come to you in a posture like, I've got questions and I'm trying to figure this out and I'm trying to figure this all out for what, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for me and Hannah? as a family? What does it mean for us as a congregation? Like, I've got questions, okay? So so I would just say that because I want you to know that that's where the posture of my heart is this morning. It truly is. Um, So these these thoughts have been kind of long on my heart, marinating and um, softening even, over time. And in truth, they're not so much thoughts, but questions. Questions that I can't seem to stop asking myself. Um, And a question that I hope I don't ever stop asking myself. And I hope against hope that in asking and in that marination, um, that, that that question will turn into more that it'll turn into some action. And if it doesn't, then I think the authenticity of my presence here, of my profession um, to love God and to love others comes into question a little bit. And that may, that's hard. That's really hard for me to come to that realization. So my parents grew up during the civil rights movement. And when I started to learn about the civil rights movement in school, I was so taken with this movement in our country's history. I I found it fascinating. Like, I would imagine myself, you know, sitting in, fighting the good fight, going on marches, sitting on the bus. Like, I imagine myself really engaged with all that was going on during that point in our country's history. And I just thought it was incredible that my parents had lived through this time in our nation's history. And I just thought, wow, that must have been incredible. And I started to notice as I got older that they didn't have a lot of stories. They didn't have a lot of stories about that time in history. And it wasn't for a lack of opportunity. My parents grew up in the heart of South Philly. And if you've ever met anyone from South Philly, like people who are from South Philly like to talk about being from South Philly, right? And so, so they would tell me lots of stories, um, stories from their youth, but they were different stories. They tell me stories about going to church, They tell me stories about joining their youth group. They tell me stories about uh, what it was like to go to school and joining community theaters. They tell me a lot of stories, but they're different stories. And stories surrounding the civil rights movement, there was a silence 
in my family. And I didn't think too much of that growing up. I kind of assumed that my parents, like a lot of other people in our country, were a symptom of segregation, that they just didn't interact much with people of varying ethnicities. Until I thought about the fact, eventually, that they grew up in the heart of South Philly. This is not an area that's void of varying ethnicities. And so that got me questioning a little bit. And uh, then in adulthood, I learned this story about my family that my my parents, actually, my grandparents, uh, employed a young African American woman in their home, and she would do household tasks around them. And this is, I never, I knew nothing about this until maybe a couple years ago, and I found out. This is really embarrassing to share, but I found out that when when they employed that young woman, she would eat in their home. And she wouldn't eat with them. Um, And after she left at the end of the night, my grandparents would boil the silverware that she had used. Um, Because it was dangerous to share silverware with someone that they viewed to be so fundamentally other than themselves. And uh, when I heard that story, then I thought, I understand why my parents don't have stories about the civil rights movement. Um, now, this is interesting because I have, I have this other really vivid memory of growing up. And it's of my family. So every year we celebrate Advent together and we would gather around the Advent calendar. And my mom will read some kind of a Christmas book to the family and, you know, Christmas Carol or um, the best Christmas pageant ever. That's a really good one. If you haven't read it, recommend. Um, but one of the books that she would come back to time and time again was a Christmas book that was written by Corrie ten Boon and it told stories about, um, you know, Christmas stories about what it was like sharing their home with Jews that were hiding from the Nazis. And my mom... When she reads this, um, she cries every year. Like deep, deep, meaningful tears. Uh, Tears of a longing for courage that she sees exemplified in this family that sacrificed themselves for the sake of others because they identified with them. And so I hold these kind of two realities Um, The silence in a world that they had so much opportunity to be engaged in. And then this longing for deep courage and identification of people, you know, with people that were seen to be so fundamentally other. And um, I have questions. (laughs) I have questions about that. And the question that's haunted me for a long time has been, Will I recognize hatred when I see it? Will I be the kind of person um, who recognizes hatred when I see it? And the kind of hatred which counts another's life as of less value than mine. You know, um, and when I'm confronted with that kind of hatred, will I stand against it? 
Or will I engage in apathy? Will I distance myself from it? And I wonder a lot about what I will be able to talk about when the next generations hear stories from me. What kind of stories will they be hearing? You know, I think about, like, like when Noah asks me questions when he gets older. What are the stories I'm going to have to share with him? Or when Nora grows up, what, what am I going to say to her about the things that I've done in this time of life that we're living in? Seven, several Sundays ago, I was really convicted um, because Don, were you here when Don talked about enough is enough? That, that stopped me. I have to be honest. And he reflected on Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. I'm going to read it again um, because it's what struck me so deeply. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, said the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rare, uh, of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your doings, from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And he reads this to me, and I feel embarrassed. I felt convicted. Now, Sunday after Sunday, the plight of immigrants is spoken about in our congregation. You know, our Lamenting commentary flows freely, yet week after week, I, I wonder to myself, when we were asked as a congregation if we would be willing to open our doors to provide sanctuary to those in need, we came to the conclusion that we would provide sanctuary only for uh, members of our congregation or people who are married to members of our congregation And while we should indeed do that, it is important that we should do that. The circumstances of our time calls for more. And I wonder why we can reconcile with ourselves to collecting things and money to send to faraway places, uh, but we can't open our doors and welcome our neighbor in in need right here in our own community. And I wonder what I should do 
And I wonder what I should do differently, and it feels like I should do something differently. And I wonder if I should say anything. I wonder if I should speak out. And I worry that my comments may come across as prideful, um, or arrogant, or even hostile. Uh, as if I have some corner on activism or morality, I really don't. I really don't. I'm afraid that my silence about my concerns is an active participation in oppression. Oppression of a people that I am called by God to love. And I recognize my need in these questions. Um, You know, I need to hear Ruth bring the plight of families before us as a congregation to say there's a family that needs home, that needs a place so that they won't be separated from one another. I need her to tell me that. I need Kate to come up in front of me and say, you know, people are in jail and just a few thousand dollars is the cost of freedom and living a real life, a full life together with their families. I need her to come before me and say that. You know, I need people from the pulpit to talk to me about what is radical hospitality. What does it mean? What does it mean for me? And what does it mean for us as a congregation? And then, you know, I, I recognize that my need goes beyond even these circumstances when I come into this space with this group of people, when I come together with you on a Sunday morning, that it's not just my response to illegal immigration. Um, you know, I need to see people like Nancy, who committed her life to moving toward people on the margins of our own very congregation. You know, I need... Whew, excuse me. I need to hear from people like Titus who devote their lives to removing landmines in Laos, not because he put them there, but because they're there and it's a problem and it needs to be dealt with. I need to be in a congregation where I come in week to week and I see Jessica commit herself, commit herself to the children of our congregation week after week after week because it's an extension of who she is. These are needs that we have. And they, and they push us and they encourage us. So please know that what I say, I do say from a deep-seated fear of my own desire for comfort. And what I say comes from a real proclivity towards apathy. These are questions that I have for myself. So I don't pretend to understand the scope of a healthy political response to the political problem of illegal immigration. I don't know what that would be, but I do believe that each of us within this congregation is equipped to respond to the human issue of loving and extending radical hospitality to our neighbors and the foreigner. In fact, that word radical, to get to the root of things, 
You know, I've been thinking about that so much as we've reflected on hospitality. What does it look like to love and welcome people so much as to get to the root of their loneliness? As to get to the root of their isolation? The root of hatred and the root of oppression? You know, these weeks together have confirmed and convicted me that we have the calling and we also have the physical space. You know, we're being given an opportunity right now to deepen our understanding of our passionate pursuit of Jesus as well as embodying that fundamental tenet of pacifism that's held so highly in our tradition. You know, more and more as I study the process of devaluation, that's what I do for work. I study what is likely to happen to a person or a group of people once they've been judged as less than in society. Um, And the more that I've been connected to understanding what does devaluation look like, uh, I wonder if pacifism runs deeper than just speaking out against violence. You know, I become more and more committed to the idea that pacifism is not being passive, but being engaged in radical nonviolence, getting to the root via nonviolent acts, you know, to be physically present to those who have been rendered vulnerable around us. Now, this is not new to most of you, but I'm a newbie Mennonite, okay? So this is new to me. (laughs) Um... You know, what it means to stand beside people who have been made vulnerable among us. To be wagers of peace. I've heard that here for the first time. What would it look like to be a wager of peace instead of war? And that's an exciting call to fully encounter God and church in an authentic way. It's active. And not just active against overt acts of violence, but against systematic oppression, which is experienced by its victims as pain. You know, when we talk about devaluation, there's like 20 ways that, or 20 experiences that people are likely to have if they've been devalued or rejected from their cultures or their societies. And uh, Jean Vanier was the first person to coin the phrase, the wounds of devaluation, that, that those experiences feel like a wound, that it hurts, and that when it goes unaddressed, it festers, and that there are things that need to be healed, and that we are called upon by God to be the balm to those wounds. So I raise the question to you all because I believe that the purpose of church is to come together to pull our passions and to pull our talents and our resources to collectively respond in a larger way than I can respond on my own. You know, in this body is the potential to carry one another in moments of weakness, to celebrate moments of strength, and to encourage one another to dig into the deep work of entering the citizenship of another kind of kingdom. And this work is hard. It's really uncomfortable. It gives me pause when the questions that I have come up. And we need one another to remain committed to it. We need one another to challenge our acceptance of the status quo. 
So in this posture and understanding that this has been a congregation that has challenged me, that has deepened my relationship with God, that has called me to love people in ways that I didn't think that I had the capacity to love people, that's challenged my idea that maybe I've done some really good work at loving people (laughs) when I haven't really even scratched the surface of what it means to love people. And in this posture, I'm asking that we reopen ourselves to the work of providing hospitality to our neighbors um, in need here in Lancaster and to be willing to provide sanctuary to illegal immigrants facing this kind of systemic oppression and who are not members or married to members of our congregation. And I believe that this is just one, just one of the many, many concrete steps towards racial reconciliation that we spent a lot of time thinking about together as a congregation last year. It's one method that's laid before us. Um, Last week... Because of the work that I do, I get to spend time with some pretty incredible people uh, when I travel. And and one woman that I've met um, throughout my work, her name is Jo, and she's really opened herself up to mentor and befriend me in a way that I probably don't deserve. Um, But she's telling me a story. So Jo is um, what one might call a Catholic worker. And what that means is that she and her husband open their home to radical hospitality. Uh, so people will contact them and say, we, need, we know a person who needs a place to live. Will you open your home and share life with them for a while? And um, so she has great stories to tell. She's met people from all walks of life, incredible people who have grown her, who have um, nourished her soul in different ways. And one of the people that she met, his name was Ron. And when Ron met Joe and they invited him to come live with them, Ron is a person with some significant cognitive impairments. um, And he also uh, has some mental health disorders. um, And he also uh, had spent some time in prison. And Joe and Mark have made it a rule for themselves that when someone comes to live with them, they, they don't ask questions about how they came to be in the situation that they are in now. You know, they want to get to know the person before they ask too many questions. And so they didn't ask why Ron had spent time in prison. But pretty quickly after Ron came to live with them, um, they realized that Ron was, Ron was actually a person that they had fallen in love with in a lot of ways. And he came to kind of hold this role of beloved uncle in their house. And so Ron actually lived with them for about 13 years until he died. And um, about three months into Ron living there, Joe was cooking dinner with him in the kitchen. And she said, you know, Ron, I have to ask, like, I have to ask, what, why did you spend time in prison? And Ron nonchalantly, like, doesn't even skip a beat. He goes, oh, arson. (laughs) And Joe just, like, had all kinds of thoughts running through her mind, racing through her mind. And she was panicking, and she thought, oh, my gosh, like, do I need to get this man out of my house right away? What do I do? And by the grace of God, she had a moment of (laughs) of creative engagement. She paused, 
And before she let all of her thoughts get away with her, um, she took a moment and she looked at Ron and she said, tell me about that. And then Ron started to tell, tell her a little bit of his story. And what had happened was that Ron, Ron's quite a tidy person. And so he would spend time outside of local businesses near their dumpster cleaning up around the dumpster so that the backs of businesses looked tidy. And one day he came upon a business and there was some graffiti on the wall. And it was pretty offensive to him. And so he started to clean it. And he used a flammable substance to start scrubbing at the wall. And there was a man who worked in that business who didn't really love the fact that Ron was hanging out outside during, you know, during the day by their dumpster. And so, so he called the police. And so Ron was imprisoned for arson without a single flame. And uh, Ron became one of the most important people in Joe's life. And I felt so convicted when she told me that story. And it made me ask more questions, right? And one thing that keeps coming back to me is that we learn to be with people that we view as being different than ourselves by being with them. There's no other way. There's no other training ground for us to prepare to be with people that we see as fundamentally different than ourselves. You learn how to be with people by being with them. And uh, I'm just asking the question if we're willing to be with people and, and how we're going to talk about it to the people who follow us. And I really appreciate your listening ears. And I appreciate your creative engagement as I close this time together. Thank you for listening.